We call them hotspots. In geopolitical language, we're talking about places known for violence, disruption, instability, and terrorism. These are the very places that Tom Doyle is fond of visiting. Not for souvenirs, mind you, but for the chance to share the hope of Christ. Can you imagine the stories he tells? Well, you won't have to imagine. You'll hear them coming up on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Welcome. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, frequent traveler to Israel. Charlie, I'm looking forward to today's program. I am too, John. I love listening to Tom Doyle's stories anytime we have him on the program. That's so right. It's going to be a fun program. All right. Hey, quick question up front. What does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever experienced a Passover Seder? You know what? This year, you can. In the lead-up to this year's Passover, our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. Visit lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button there for more information and to sign up. Well, from political crises in Israel to the earthquake in Turkey, recent current events have forced us to kind of postpone several very important stories from amazing Israel and archaeology. So this week, we're going to be focusing exclusively on news items related to amazing Israel. And then next week, we'll explore recent archaeological discoveries making the headlines. Our first story this week focuses on an Israeli startup company, developing a minimally invasive procedure to fix heart valve insufficiency without open-heart surgery. What's the significance of this new approach developed by Cuspa Medical? Well, heart valve or aortic insufficiency happens when the aortic valve in the heart doesn't close well. It allows blood to flow back into the left ventricle, which creates stress on the heart. Up until now, the only option for patients has been open-heart surgery to replace the valve. The procedure can take five to six hours, and only about 20% of patients are approved for the surgery because of the danger, especially for older adults. Mm -hmm. Cuspa Medical has developed a device that can be threaded into the heart using a catheter, uh, the same process as inserting a stent. Uh, once inside the heart, the device then grasps the leaflets around the aortic valve, sealing them to prevent the leakage of blood. The device, currently being tested on pigs, reduces regurgitation by up to 80% while staying in place and not generating any tension or damage to the leaflets. Now, other companies are exploring ways to totally replace the valve leaflets without open-heart surgery, but Cuspa Medical feels their approach, repairing rather than replacing the valve tissue, eliminates the other side effects and complications like the need to implant a pacemaker. They envision the procedure becoming as simple and straightforward as inserting a stent to open up a blocked artery is today. For the 80% of patients now rejected for open heart surgery to repair the problem, this could be a difference between life and death. Currently, the five-year survival rate for those with heart valve insufficiency is just 30%. Hmm. Cuspa Medical hopes to have the device and treatment protocol available for clinical trials within two years. Israeli scientists have discovered a substance that can apparently stop cancer cells from spreading to the body. How does it work, and how far along are they in moving it from the laboratory to the doctor's office? 
Uh, a research team at Baralan University produced a peptide, a chain of amino acids that appears to be 90% effective in stopping solid tumors from metastasizing and causing secondary cancer elsewhere in the body. Uh, they published their peer-reviewed research showing that the peptide successfully prevented metastasis in mice. Uh, they're focusing on breast cancer, but they believe the approach will work on all solid tumors, meaning cancers other than those of the blood, bone marrow, or lymph nodes. Their research revealed that solid tumors develop feet-shaped structures that jut out from their surface and work like battering rams to push their way through tissue to enter the bloodstream. Uh, these structures, called invadopodia, are activated by the coming together of two proteins. The peptide they have developed stops this protein interaction within the cancer cell. Right now, there are no drugs in production to prevent metastasis, so this could be a major new weapon in the arsenal for treating cancer by keeping it from spreading. The next challenge is to develop the peptide into a drug with dosing mechanism to deliver it to the right location in the body. As the researchers describe it, they have the arrowhead of the missile, and now they're working to develop the whole missile. Now, hopefully, this team or another in Amazing Israel will work out an effective way to deliver this peptide to the target. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at uh, some interesting developments from Amazing Israel, including this one. Mitochondria make up the energy factory found in every single cell in our bodies. Sadly, though, malfunctioning or mutated mitochondria are at the root of a wide range of ailments. Now, Minovia Therapeutics is working to develop mitochondrial augmentation. So what are they doing and what impact might it have in the future? Unpack this, Charlie. Yeah, Minovia Therapeutics is now testing mitochondrial augmentation therapy on children with a rare, untreated mitochondrial disease. The company's initial goal was to see if they could isolate young, healthy mitochondria from one type of cell and then put them into a diseased or aging cell to integrate with the cell's other mitochondria and produce fresh energy for the cell. They then shifted to the mitochondrial augmentation approach that takes diseased hematopoietic stem cells, those are immature blood cells from patients, enriches them with healthy mitochondria, and then injects them back into the patient. They focused on patients with Pearson syndrome. It's a fatal bone marrow disorder that's only diagnosed in about 100 children globally. So it's a very small group, but that's what they felt they could get a handle on. In the first clinical trial, 12 children were treated with mitochondria taken and enriched from the blood of their mothers. The children showed improvement after just one treatment, including increased aerobic function, weight gain, and increased strength and endurance. But as children grow, their demands for energy grow as well, so the company began evaluating the effect of multiple doses over time. Unfortunately, the clinical trial was cut short by COVID, which prohibited the children from traveling to Israel for follow-up treatments. The company then began developing a process for mitochondrial augmentation and cryopreservation using mitochondria from placentas donated after C-section births. Ultimately, they believe the technique they're developing could be used to bring life-changing therapies to people with other mitochondrial dysfunction from rare diseases to actually aging, which causes mitochondria to break down within even healthy adults. Now, this is definitely a work in progress, but it's a work with far-reaching possibilities for the future, and that's what makes it so exciting. Very interesting, Charlie. Thank you for that story. we got time for one more uh, question. What's the best use for a plot of land? 
growing crops, or installing solar panels? Well, a new Israeli startup called TriSolar believes the correct answer is both. So uh, what's their secret? Yeah, TriSolar is a leader in the emerging field of agrivoltaics, a process that uses the same piece of land to grow crops and generate electricity without compromising one or the other. TriSolar goes into the greenhouse itself, cutting down on installation costs by utilizing the existing infrastructure. The current greenhouse covering diffuses the sunlight inside, creating a situation where the solar panel can receive the sun's rays from multiple directions. Uh, They also employ tilting panels with sensors that register and utilize the light reflected from different directions. Tilting also controls the amount of light that gets in the greenhouse to optimize the balance between the crops and the solar panels. The company's goal is to produce solar energy while also saving energy with the advanced panel tilting technology and, at the same time, create the ideal light, humidity, and temperature conditions within the greenhouse for the crops. The system's designed to benefit farmers. Uh, They'll receive a reliable income from the electricity they produce, while also continuing to receive income from the agriculture that's growing inside the greenhouse. Uh, They can sell the electricity to the grid, or they can use it within their own farm for cooling or heating the greenhouses, or for the storage facilities where they store products before shipping them off to the market. The system is up and running in Israel, and they've also set up pilot programs in Europe. You might not be able to have your cake and eat it too, John, but with this innovative startup from Amazing Israel, you can have solar power and productive greenhouses on the same plot of land. Wow. What a neat story. Charlie, for listeners who say, you know, where do you come up with this stuff? What are a couple of good sources that they themselves can check out if they want to dig just a bit deeper? Well, three great sources. The first one, Israel 21C. Uh, is a website devoted to just technology that's coming online in Israel. It's a great place. Also, the Times of Israel online and Jerusalem Post have sections on innovation and technology, and I check those on a regular basis because they're always listing new things that are happening. Okay, check those out, and check out our website as well. It's thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org, where you can learn about today's guest, past programs, and more. Don't forget, coming up, it's a conversation with Tom Doyle. Uh, Hot spots, bright spots. You know, a lot of trouble in our world, particularly in the Middle East. But boy, in the middle of it all, Tom Doyle ventures boldly, bravely, where most of us would dare not go. And he brings back stories you've got to hear. That's next on The Land and the Book. them hot spots. In geopolitical language, we're talking about places known for violence, disruption, instability, and terrorism. Some of these are the very places that today's guest is fond of visiting. You heard me, fond of visiting. Not for souvenirs, mind you, but for the chance to share the hope of Christ. And here's the thing, right in the middle of the hot spots, he's finding bright spots. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, promising we're about to rock your world with stories from a great friend. And speaking of friends, how can you and I be more intentional in our friendships with the Muslims around us? Let's listen. Question, should I visit a mosque to better understand my Muslim friend? Or is this maybe not a good idea? That's a question for Samuel Naman, who serves on faculty at the Moody Bible Institute, born and raised in Pakistan. What do you say? Well, 
at least for our female listeners, I think that we have to be very cautious going to the mosque. Some mosques are open, but some are not. Mm. If you want to go and uh, visit a mosque, maybe go at the invitation of your Muslim friend. And it's it's okay. You 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 will go probably if if it's a Friday prayer, you'll sit in the back or depending on where you are, uh, you can observe. So I don't feel threatened to go to a mosque. But for long-term relationships, I think it, it becomes very, very difficult. But sure, I mean, I take my students to mosques and all those you things. You do? Well, absolutely, because let them see. And in, depending on many mosques and other places, they are very welcoming. I just want to make sure when I visit a mosque that we will not get a lecture of three hours of Islam only. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that happens, you know, because they feel sometimes that, well, this is it. Now, if we have 50 Christians... And let's just bombard them with uh, our message. So we have to be very cautious and careful. We are here as your guest. We need to remind them, you have invited us or we have requested you to come and visit. And this is our purpose is just to visit, not for debate and all those things. We just want to observe what you do and how you do it. Dr. Samuel Naman is on the faculty at Moody Bible Institute. He was born and raised in Pakistan, so has a unique vantage point in sharing these thoughts with us here on The Land and the Book. Today's guest is an all-time favorite on The Land and the Book. We cannot seem to get enough of Tom Doyle and his always-fresh-from-the-front-line stories. If you've never heard him before, Tom is the president of Uncharted Ministries, an accomplished author, popular international speaker, pastor, missionary to the unreached, and a veteran tour guide to Israel and the Middle East. Among other books, he's written Dreams and Visions, Killing Christians, and Standing in the Fire. Hey, thanks for connecting today, Tom. Oh, it's so good to be with you, John. Thank you. What an introduction. <laughs> hey, let me uh, start with a rather basic question as we begin. When you think of hot spots in the Middle East, are they in general getting hotter, as in more and more trouble? Or do you see signs here and there that at least some places are cooling off a bit? You know what? We see them getting hotter. And I think the reason, John, is because some of these coalitions that are happening in fact, our national leaders in Syria, I was asking them a question uh, a couple of weeks ago before the earthquake, and I said, are you having problems with the military? Are they you know, questioning you? Are they harassing you like normal? And our Syrian national leaders said, we don't see the Syrian army much anymore. And I said, you don't? He said, no, we just see the Russians. And so we know what's happening in these countries. In Iran, there's coalitions that are regional now that have made them much stronger. So it's much more difficult for the believers in these places. I think it's just ratcheting up. All right, let me have you take us to Syria. Boy, this place has been torn apart by civil war. It's gone on years and years and years and years. Any hope there? What's the bright spot in a story in that very hot spot? Well, you know, we always say this, John, the worst places to be a believer in our mind are actually the best places. The church is desperate for God to move. They have little. They have nothing. They were in the midst of a 12-year war, and then, of course, that earthquake hit, and how devastating was that? But they cling to Christ. They are all in. And so as a result, people who are desperate in Syria are attracted to them. They see them living life with joy and purpose, and they're helping people. They're not depressed. And and so they're just a light of the world to the people around them. And so as far as the gospel, we're seeing it magnified in the desperate countries like Iran, like Syria, like um, places like the Gaza Strip with 
a terrorist group running the government, Hamas. Mm. That's where we see the light shining brightest. How about a story of somebody that some of your contacts have, have run into that made your office go, wow? Gosh, there's so many. I think recently in Gaza, there's a young couple. We wrote about them in Women Who Risk, and we called the chapter Trapped in Gaza. And uh, Shireen had a husband that was not interested in the gospel, did not treat her well, just wasn't a good guy. And she endured a long marriage of 15 years. He'd never bought her a present, not a birthday, not even when they were married, anniversary, nothing. And so as we interviewed her about her life in Christ there in God's how difficult it was, she said, would you pray for my husband? So we put that in the book, John, <laughs> pray for him. And it ended up that all the people that are reading maybe stop and give a prayer and and it ends up he gets radically saved. Mm. I mean radically saved. Uh, when we prayed with him on the phone, he was crying, and God can forgive me for as terrible of, as I've been. Well, there are some, John, that take off in their life in Christ slowly. And then there's others that go up like a rocket ship. And this was her husband, Muhammad. I mean, each day he was sending me texts, and he just looks them up, and he's he's grappling with the scriptures and he's growing. And I thought he must be cutting and pasting these. I mean, <laughs> he, he certainly doesn't know the Bible that well yet. And so I asked him, Mohammed, where are you getting these texts that you send me each day? And he said, well, I write them, Tom. And I said, you, you write them. This is amazing. And he said, well, of course he goes, I'm going deep with the Lord. I'm with my four best friends every day. And I said, well, who are they? And he said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm in the Word, Tom. <laughs> and so, so here is this man growing in Christ. And do you know, John, recently he was uh, forced by Hamas Muslims to say the Shahada, the Confession of Faith for Islam. And he said during Ramadan, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Hmm. And they said, you have to do it. You're Muslim. And he said, I'm not anymore, which he could have gotten killed. And so they beat him up, they broke his arm, mm. and his wife sent me a picture of his broken arm. The forearm looked like a V. It was just crooked. Oh. It had a little ace bandage on it. wasn't, you don't have anything in Gaza, you know. And I said to him, I am so sorry, Mohammed, for what you've gone through, but you suffered for Christ. I'm so proud of you. And he said, Tom, really, the only question we should ask ourselves when tough things like this happen is this, did it conform me more to the image of Christ or not? Wow. Bright spots in hot spots here on The Land and the Book. Our guest, Tom Doyle, president of Uncharted Ministries. What a snapshot of Gaza. Let's, uh, let's switch gears for a minute and go back to Syria. You know, here's this war-torn land. What kind of stories can you tell us from Syria? You know, one of the things in Syria is before the war, John, there virtually was no adoption because Arab families, if a parent dies or both dies, the cousins will take them. That's just normally how it is. But we're talking about whole families being wiped out and street kids that are on their own. And so our team has a goal to reach them and for this to be the foundation of the next generation church in Syria. So Muslims, Alawites, Druze, children coming to faith in Christ, and of course, tons of adults, but they're targeting this next generation. And some of these young believers coming from different backgrounds 
are growing rapidly in Christ. So one father was so angry hearing about, and he was a Muslim, Sunni Muslim, hearing about what his children were learning. Um, they were not orphans, but you know, he didn't have a wife and he had the kids. And so he goes to check this group out, this Bible club that they're doing in Syria. Mm-hmm. And he's angry and, and told the pastor off, told our worker off before <laughs> they even got started. He said, this is, a, this is a crime. I don't want my son to hear this. I do not want this. Well, it ends up as he sat there and heard this simple children's Bible lesson. He prayed to receive Christ, John, right then and right there. Mm. And I mean, we hear this all the time in the Muslim world. They've got to hear the gospel 20 times. He heard it once, and he said, it pierced my heart, and I knew this was the truth. And now he's gathering children in the neighborhood, bringing them to these Bible clubs so they can hear the gospel. So, so many just need to step out and share the gospel with conviction and love it will transform hearts, and it's doing it in some of the most desperate places in the world, like Syria, Gaza, and Iran. Do we have time for a story from Iran? Oh, we do indeed. And, uh, you know, we think about all the protests that were going on there weeks and months ago. You know, people are wondering, who are these protesters? What are they hoping for? And, you know, what are they protesting about? And yet in the midst of all that, you've got a story. Oh, my gosh. There was a woman that was on a bus one day, and she was— suicidal. She's got a failing marriage. They own a business. They're in debt. They're in the hole. Everything in her life is negative. And finally, she gets a prescription for some pills, that sleeping pills that she is going to use to commit suicide, carries them in her purse, John, everywhere she goes. So she keeps opening her purse and looking at that. Is today the day Mm -hmm. that I'm going to do that? Is this what I'm going to do? Am I going to kill myself? And every time she opens that purse, she's thinking about it. Well, she's so forlorn that on the bus, an underground believer gets on the bus, and she comes and sits right next to her (laughs) and says, I just saw you look desperate. Are you okay? You just look like you're so sad, and you don't know what to do. Can I help you? And this woman just opened up and told her her life. And she said, you know what? I have a little magazine here put out by a Christian group, and it's of women in the Bible, and it's very inspirational. I think you would like it. And she said, well, I don't have any money for it. She said, no, 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 no. I just take it, please. It's not for sale. I just want to give it to you. She took it, put it in her purse. She's got the pills. She's got the magazine. <laughs> and throughout the day, she's seeing both the pills, the magazine. But before... She went to her office after this other woman, this believer, got off the bus. She chased her and followed her and said, I have a question for you, this desperate Iranian woman. And the believer said, what's that? And she said, did God send you to me? Mm. And she said, he did. Mm. It's a divine appointment. He sent me to you. Goes through her day. It's horrible again. She goes home after dinner, sees the pills, sees the magazine, starts to read the magazine, read it through the night, John. Mm. And the woman had put her phone number in the magazine. They got together, and over the next several days, she came to faith in Christ. It's just a beautiful example of Jesus' heart for the desperate, to send that woman on that bus to reach out to her. Now she loves Christ, still got a ton of problems, but she's in fellowship with believers in the underground church. God's Mm. using people like that to share the gospel. 
You're listening to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, joined by Tom Doyle, president of Uncharted Ministries. What do we know about how Christians are faring in Iran as all this unfolds? Well, you know, right now, one of the things that's a, a sweet story is that believers, underground believers, are going to the front lines to help the protesters. Here's how it works, John, in Iran. If a protester gets shot, if they are taken to a hospital, they're immediately arrested mm. because the government knows they were at the protest. They were shot. And so the people are trying to get them away from the hospital so they don't get sentenced to maybe life in prison. So believers are going and helping people to get hurt, whatever, beaten up, pulling them into their homes and mending them back to health. In fact, one guy has a pickup truck and goes to pharmacies and buys bandages and first aid kits and all of that just to help. So they are being salt and light on the front lines. And we are praying for this. We're praying that it'll be just like America. There was the Vietnam demonstration, Mm -hmm. but after that, we had this incredible Jesus revolution that broke out. That's what we're praying for. It's more than just freedom from the government. They need freedom from their bondage. They need freedom in Christ. And so we're praying for a Jesus revolution in Iran. And you've got some prayer prompts and tools at your website. Remind us again what that might be and what people can expect. You bet. It's Uncharted, U-N-C-H-A-R-T-E-D, ministries.com. All right. And you'll find some great tools there to help you pray for the persecuted church in Iran, in Syria, in Gaza. Tom, man, we, we could extend this to a full hour, and I'm sure you'd have more stories yet. But thank you for uh, rejoining us. We love having you on the program. Oh, it's my honor. Thank you so much, John. All right. And we'll look forward to a fresh set of Bible questions that have come in as Charlie Dyer rejoins the program coming up here on The Land and the Book. Have you emailed us your question? You can at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Few things are more satisfying than scratching an itch or itching a scratch, depending on your bad language. I'm John Geiger. And you know, when you uh, when you come to a passage in Scripture that uh, makes you really wonder, pause, it's like it's like feeling an itch and you wish you could scratch it. But sometimes we don't we don't know how to resolve that question, that passage, do we? That's what this next segment is all about on the land and the book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie's been a pastor. He's a Bible student all of his life, a student of Israel and the Middle East. And you ready for today's questions, Charlie? Oh, I'm ready, John. Well, I've got one for us. What does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year, you can. In the lead-up to this year's Passover, our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through the ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. Visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there for more information and to sign up. All right, for our stack of questions today, we'll open up with one from Alan who takes us to Isaiah chapter 16. He says the chapter is about God's judgment on Moab, and verse 1 refers to Selah in the wilderness, which one commentary says is Petra. 
Another commentary says this was a past fulfillment when the Assyrians destroyed the Moabites as a people. Still another commentary says this is a future prophecy of Israel fleeing from the Antichrist to Petra at the end of the tribulation. Could this be both a near and far fulfillment? I see it actually as a prophecy of judgment against Moab, which Isaiah predicted would be attacked and despoiled by Assyria. You know, chapter 15 in that uh, book uh, pictures the fall of the major cities of Moab and the flight of refugees. Then in chapter 16, those refugees who'd fled south to Edom send tribute to the leader of Judah, and perhaps they were asking if they could be allowed to flee west then to Jerusalem. That's why the mountains of the daughter of Zion is mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 16. They request permission for the outcasts of Moab to stay there for protection as a hiding place from the Assyrian destroyer. And I see this prophecy against Moab that was fulfilled in Isaiah's day. In fact, in verse 14, Isaiah makes the prophecy very specific. Moab's defeat and destruction would take place within three years. I think this might have been fulfilled during the campaign of either Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, uh, he invaded and captured Damascus in 732 BC, or it might have been the campaign of Sargon II, who is the one who destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, 10 years later. Now, as the Assyrian forces pushed south, they likely sent forces to destroy the northern cities of Moab, causing those people to flee first south to Edom and then west to Judah and Jerusalem. But Isaiah's prophecy was a genuine prophecy, but it was fulfilled in his day. All right, let's stick with the book of Isaiah, move to chapter 19 for another listener question, suggesting this passage claims, Egypt shall cry to the Lord and he will send them a savior, verse 21. The Lord shall heal Egypt, verse 22. And then verses 23 through 25 suggest Egypt, Assyria, and Israel will serve the Lord together and have a highway connecting them. When will this be? I think this is in the millennial kingdom after Christ returns. Am I right? Is this a new highway or has it existed as the international highway? Well, in this case, I do believe it's going to be fulfilled in the future in the millennial kingdom. And I find it interesting that in this section, five times Isaiah uses the expression in that day to picture this future time. And he does it in verses 16, 18, 19, 21, and 23. It's hard to miss that that repetition. Now, in Isaiah's day, Judah was threatened by Assyria and was seeking help from Egypt. But in this future day, Egypt will be worshiping the God of Israel and a highway will extend from Assyria to Egypt as these past enemies become allies with Israel and fellow worshipers of Israel's God. And this does correspond roughly to what's often called the international highway, as you mentioned, that did extend from Egypt through the promised land and on into Assyria and Mesopotamia. All right, here's a question from Barbara. She says, we know that God knows all things and doesn't change his mind, and he doesn't lie. So how do we reconcile his comment to Moses that he wanted to destroy the nation of Israel in Exodus 32, his relenting in Jonah 3, verse 10, and twice in Amos? What is the purpose of these verses? Thanks for your thoughts. Yeah, and it's interesting, that question you're raising actually appears in slightly different forms in several passages of the Bible, those you listed and others. I think the best way to answer this is to start with first Numbers 23, verse 19. There we're told, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Now, since God's perfect and he's internally consistent, he doesn't change his mind to repent like we do because his actions are always perfect. But from our perspective, there are times when God can appear to change his actions, but it's always in response to what we do. So how do we reconcile these statements with those that suggest God changes his mind? Well, in passages like Exodus 32 or Jonah 3, those you mentioned, uh, the writer's using a figure of speech to ascribe a human emotion to God. 
From our perspective, it might appear that God relents or changes his mind, but in actual fact, it's the people who have changed their minds, not God. God will always bless those who follow him, and he will consistently judge those who turn against him. And while it might appear God's changing his mind, it's actually those people who are changing. Now, this principle is explained, I think, very well in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 to 10. In part, Jeremiah has God say there, At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot or pull down or destroy it. If that nation against which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. In other words, God is consistent in judging evil and rewarding obedience. And if the people change their actions, God appears to change. But in reality, he's always remained perfectly consistent with his character. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. It's question and answer time with our host, Charlie Dyer. Steve says, I've been hearing that a new type of buying and selling is soon to be forced upon us in that cash transactions will be replaced by a central bank digital currency which is a chip implanted under the skin of the right hand. Is this the mark of the beast? What credibility do you put into uh, these types of stories? You know, I start this way. The mark of the beast in Revelation isn't something that a person could accidentally receive or be tricked into receiving. You know, in Revelation 13, 15, uh, it says the world will be commanded to worship the image or statue of the Antichrist. Those who refuse will be killed. Then in verse 16, as a sign of loyalty to those who worship the statue, uh, they'll be required to receive the mark or imprint on their right hand or forehead as a visible sign of their loyalty. And to ensure everyone displays their loyalty, a penalty is attached. Only those without identifying mark are allowed to buy or sell. So in that sense, there is a threat of starvation for anyone unwilling to declare their loyalty to the Antichrist. However, the mark doesn't have anything to do with a digital currency or an implanted chip. Rather, it's intended as a display of loyalty and worship of the future evil world ruler. And those alive at the time will be faced with a very real choice between life and death. But here's the other good news. This takes place during the second half of the final seven-year tribulation period. Revelation 13.5 makes that very clear. It says this evil individual will only be able to exercise such authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years of that seven-year period. And God removes the church from the earth before the beginning of that final seven-year period. So this is specifically part of God's program for Israel and for the future of the world with the Antichrist, but it's not something the church will be part of. Stephen asks, are you familiar with the Messianic Jewish author Jonathan Kahn? Have you read any of his books, and do you believe the gift of prophecy still exists? Yeah, two questions there. So first, I am familiar with Jonathan Kahn and his books. I don't know him personally, and my impression is he's a sincere believer, and yet I can't really agree with his writings. For example, in The Harbinger, I think he takes Isaiah 9:10 totally out of context. Uh, in that passage, Isaiah was predicting the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, which verse 9 makes clear. It was not a prediction of the attack on the World Trade Center in 9-11. It was indeed a prophecy, but it was a prophecy that was literally fulfilled shortly after it was made by Isaiah. Now, in answer to the second question, I personally have not seen the gift of prophecy, at least as it's described in the Bible, in operation today. If someone were to claim that they were getting direct revelation from God, then I think they would need to follow the same requirements God laid out for those who claim to speak in his name in the past. Everything they claim is prophetic has to be fulfilled with 100% accuracy. It has to align with everything God had already said in his word. If someone claimed to be a prophet spoke falsely in the past, they were put to death. Deuteronomy 13.5 said, the false prophet or visionaries who try to lead you astray must be put to death. 
Now, that's a high bar of truthfulness and accuracy that God expects from anyone who claims to be sharing direct revelation in his name. And I don't see that in operation today. A question from Paul. The two pillars in Solomon's temple, one is named for Boaz, the other is named for Yaquin. I know the story of Boaz and Ruth, Boaz being the kinsman redeemer, but I can't recall anything about Yaquin or his significance. Yeah, and the pillar in Solomon's temple wasn't named for Boaz from the story of Ruth. That first pillar, Yaquin, in Hebrew means he establishes or he shall establish. And the second pillar, Boaz, means in his strength or in him is strength. I think the pillars were intended to remind the people that God was behind their strength and security. It was a visible reminder of the real power of God whom they had come to worship. Up next, it's Charlie's devotional, a favorite for many. You don't want to miss it. Stick around right here on The Land and the Book. Of all the stories in the Bible, it has to be among the favorites for most people, the story of Esther. We're going to dig in just a bit in Charlie's devotional coming up here, Charlie. So many different facets, though, to this story. I mean, how do you choose what to talk about? Uh, John, I, I read it over and over again and just say to myself, what is it that's standing out to me right now? And and uh, I begin down that pathway and, uh, and then let the text take me where it will. All right. We're looking forward to that devotional. But right now, let's listen to this Holy Land experience. I love these testimonies, folks who have traveled to Israel, come back with their lives changed and memories that are absolutely glowing like this one. Hi, David Unger here from Cedar Lake, Indiana. I was at the Sea of Galilee overlooking this beautiful sea one morning. The evergreen trees surrounded me just like in Cedar Lake. And I stood there in quiet and peace. Maybe there were even birds. And I said, all of a sudden, I was overcome with emotion. I said, oh, my God, you've given me the same sanctuary and the same nurture that you've given your son, Jesus. How could you have blessed me so and I'm so thankful. And I was so emotional, just me and God. And then all of a sudden the cries, David, David, get your bags. The professor says, anybody not on the bus in a few moments more, he's going to get ready and go and leave them behind. So I had to dash for my bags, and the journey began once again. Thank you for letting me share. Well, if like me, you love the book of Esther, you're going to love Charlie's devotional. Charlie, I'll get out of the way and let you at it. Okay, John, and I want to start today's devotional with a riddle. Are you ready? Okay. When is Lot not Abraham's nephew? Or when is the final month of the year not December? They give up? Well, here's the answer. It's when the lot is something you cast rather than a person. And when the final month of the year is from the Hebrew calendar rather than ours. I have a feeling if I could look into everyone's faces right now, I'd see them staring at me with a blank expression. So uh, let's head to Susa, the winter palace of the ancient Persian kings in what's today southwestern Iran. The remains of the Apadana Palace can still be seen, and they hint at the magnificence of the palace in the days of King Xerxes. We've traveled back in time to a rather pivotal period in the reign of Xerxes. He recently held a massive banquet to prepare for a planned invasion of Greece. But his wife's refusal to obey his command and appear before the nobles put Xerxes in a bad light. He responded by deposing Queen Vashti and launching a search for her replacement. The winner of the royal beauty contest was Esther, 
a young Jewish woman who was chosen as the new queen. She was the cousin of an older Jewish man named Mordecai who sat in the gate at Susa. Mordecai advised Esther to keep her ethnic identity secret. Shortly after Esther was chosen as queen, a plot was formed to kill King Xerxes. Mordecai heard about the plot and passed word of it on to Esther. She in turn reported it to the king. The two conspirators were executed and the event was dutifully recorded in the royal archives. In a simple oversight, Mordecai's role in uncovering the plot was forgotten. But another man was honored about the same time. His name was Haman, and he was a descendant of the Amalekites, the nation God had commanded Israel's king Saul to wipe out because of their evil. Saul had disobeyed, ultimately costing him his throne, and now one of Agag the Amalekites' descendants was in a place of power and prestige. Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman, likely because of the dishonor in which God held the descendants of Agag the Amalekite. When others pointed out that slight, Haman first considered having Mordecai put to death, but then he decided on a far more sinister plot. When he learned Mordecai was a Jew, he decided to have all the Jews killed, including Mordecai. But wait, I can hear you saying, what happened to Lot and the final month of the year, those things you mentioned at the start of this devotional? Where do those elements come into this story? I'm glad you asked. In the third chapter of the book of Esther, Haman and his cronies gathered to decide how best to kill all the Jews. It's the first month of the year, the month Nisan, and they began casting lots to determine the best day to carry out their fiendish plan. Now, casting lots is similar to what we might think of as flipping a coin or drawing straws or rolling dice. It involved using a random process to try to determine the best month and day for their dastardly deed. The lot fell on the twelfth month, the final month of the year. In Hebrew, it's called Adar. And the thirteenth day of that month was chosen as D-Day, the day for the destruction of the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. That gave the plotters time to have the king approve the plan and send the decree throughout the kingdom. On the thirteenth day of Nisan, the first month, they got Xerxes to approve their plan. So in exactly eleven months, the Jews would be wiped out. Everything was going like clockwork until Mordecai learned of the plot. He persuaded Esther to take her life in her hands and approach the king about the matter. Just over two months later, on the 23rd day of the third month, the king issued another decree giving the Jews permission to defend themselves when the 13th day of the 12th month finally arrived. The announcement was sent out and it became clear that God had intervened to protect his people. But what about Haman? What happened to him? To borrow a quote from Shakespeare, he ended up hoist on his own petard. He was hung on the very gallows he had built to hang Mordecai. But now it's time to head back to where we started. The festival or Feast of Purim is this coming week. Purim is the plural form of the word poor, which refers to a lot, or in this case the lots, plural, that were cast by Haman to determine when to kill the Jews. But instead of being the day of their destruction, it ultimately became the day of deliverance as God spared the Jewish people and instead destroyed their enemies. Haman, the descendant of Agag the Amalekite, was undone by Mordecai, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, a distant relative of King Saul. Saul's earlier disobedience nearly brought about the destruction of the Jewish people, but Mordecai's obedience brought deliverance and finally finished the job left undone by King Saul. But what does all this have to do with us today? Well, first, it reminds me of a truth found in Proverbs 16.33. 
The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Haman used lots to determine what he thought would be the best day to destroy the Jewish people. But ultimately, God decided it would be the best day for their deliverance. God's hand is at work, even when actions might seem totally random, like casting lots or flipping a coin. It's no accident that the name of God never appears in the book of Esther. His name might be missing, but his fingerprints are all over the book. From the continuation of the conflict between the descendants of Agag the Amalekite and the descendant of Saul the Benjamite, to the many so-called coincidences in the book, like Esther just happening to be chosen queen, to Mordecai just happening to overhear the plot to kill the king, to the king just happening to have insomnia and choosing to read the royal archive that mentioned Mordecai's good deed, to Haman just happening to show up in the palace at that exact moment, they're all reminders that God is at work behind the scenes, even if we can't clearly see his face. Second, the story reminds me of God's care for the Jewish people. Even when they were in exile because of their disobedience, God still watched over them. When he first appeared to Abraham, God promised to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all through history, including in the book of Esther, that's exactly what God has done. There's a rising tide of anti-Semitism in our world today, but God's love for and protection over his people remains intact. This is true because, as Paul said in Romans 11:29, his gifts and his call are irrevocable. God hasn't changed his mind when it comes to the Jewish people. The words of Zechariah 2.8 still ring true. Whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. So if you have a Jewish friend, wish them a happy Purim this week. And then pray that God will orchestrate the circumstances of their life in a way that will bring them into a personal relationship with their Messiah and Savior. You know, Charlie, as I listen to your two takeaways there, I'm struck by the fact that anti-Semitism is not just a hate crime. It is fighting against the very face of God. I mean, it couldn't get more serious than that. You're exactly right, John. And it has all the hallmarks of Satan in it. Hmm. Uh, Satan opposes God. He opposes God's people. And I believe that Satan's fingerprints are behind much of the anti-Semitism we see today. And I loved your reminder that God is at work behind the scenes, even when we can't see it. Uh, And I think a lot of listeners right now are saying, boy, that's something I needed to hear. So thank you for sharing that. Hey, our website is ready for you to check out at thelandandthebook.org. What's there? Well, information about today's guest, past programs, as well as uh, links to the ministries of Moody Bible Institute. You'll find a link there to the books that Charlie and I have written. You can explore those and a whole lot more. Also, our podcast. Why not explore this uh, convenient way to listen on demand? It's all at thelandandthebook.org. Well, our time is gone, but we thank you so much for listening to today's broadcast. I'm John Geiger, our host, Charlie Dyer. For our producer, Dan Anderson, thank you for listening. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.